The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, listeners. You're tuned into Inspire FM. I'm Giazuddin, a director at Wolf and Coast Solicitors. And this is the Ask Your Lawyer Show, your weekly look into what's moving and shaking in the world of law. What are we going to be speaking about this week? Well, it's something that's ignited debate um, from the upper echelons of government down to the most sacred of debating arenas, the sofas and dinner tables of everyone up and down this glorious land. Everyone's got an opinion on it. I'm sure you have too. What I want you to do is call in on 01582 481 822 you can whatsapp us on 0778 so 0779481822 you can text us on that uh, number as well um listeners i'm going to ask you to do one thing i want to ask you to close your eyes and i want you to think about the next two words that i'm going to say to you and see what it conjures up the emotions and what it stirs within you shamima begum now, for those of you that have been in police custody in Comunicado for the last month or so, Shamima Begum is a 19-year-old um, who, at the age of 15, allegedly travelled to... Well, she, she didn't allegedly travel to Syria. She did travel to Syria with two friends, allegedly to, to join, in some capacity, ISIS or Daesh, as some would have them known. She's recently surfaced again, um, having been found by a journalist in a refugee camp. And... What she did, she raised the possibility of her return, stating that she'd given birth twice um, whilst being in the camps and that um, she was due to give birth again. Her first two children had sadly passed away and she appealed for sympathy, saying that she wanted to return from Syria for the sake of her child, um, who at the time was um, unborn. Uh, The child has now been born. She says that she's scared and she wants to come back. Now... An absolute furor erupted in the mainstream media and social media. Um, It's been spectacular and sometimes visceral. Um, I'm going to mention some of the words mentioned in the mainstream headlines. She's been referred to as a jihadi bride, ISIS bride, terrorist bride, ISIS teen. She's been described as arrogant, bloodthirsty and a murderer. On the back of it all, what's happened is instead of bringing her back, the Home Secretary Savi Javed has cancelled her citizenship and told her that she's no longer a British citizen. I'm going to be joined by three people today who are going to set things straight for you. They'll explain, one, the actual immigration state of of Shamima Begum. Two, the legalities of the decision made by Sajid Javed. Three, what, if any crimes have been committed by Shamima. Four, why she travelled abroad. And five, what this all means for you, our listeners. Now, my first guest is uh, a young lady called Rahana Fazl. She hasn't quite arrived at the studio yet. Uh, she's been held up by traffic, but she's due to arrive. Um, Rahana is an award-winning uh, activist reigning from Luton. Uh, she works with the Luton Council of Mosques. She's a chair of Lantern, uh, a grassroots movement which seeks to empower the Muslim women of Luton. Uh, she's worked in many cross-party projects and is involved in a group called Faiths Against Children's Sexual exploitation with the acronym FACES. I've set up a link for you so you can uh, access that via the uh, Inspire FM uh, Facebook site and you can have a look at what FACES do and what they're involved in. Um, Shami- when Rohana arrives, she's going to speak about why Shamima went to Syria and try to help us understand the concept of grooming, uh, something that some people have uh, uh, said explains why she actually travelled to uh, Syria. Now, Rohan has written an article, and I'd encourage you all to read it. It's about Shamima, and it's entitled Shamima Begum, Children, Grooming and Consent. I've set up uh, a link for you to read that article as well. And listeners, if you go to that article and have a look at it, it helps you reference uh, what we're going to be referring to in the show. Alongside Rohana, when she does arrive, is Atik Malik, a director at Liberty Law Solicitors, who I'm sure you're very well acquainted with. Um, he's a prominent lawyer and a social activist. Uh, he'll be one of our legal experts today and he'll be assisting us with the terror laws and speaking about the discriminatory aspects of this whole issue. Um, I'm just going to pause there because Rohan has just arrived in the studio. Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. I don't know why uh, someone picked me up, but there we go. <laughs> um, just going back to Atik. Uh, Atik's also written an article uh, about this whole subject um, um, and it's entitled Is Sajid Javid 
Javed's deprivation of Shamima Begum's citizenship legal. There's a link to that uh, article as well, readers, and I'll ask you to go and read that. Uh, Rahana, assalamu alaikum. I've, I've just to recap, I've just gone over who you are and I've explained about faces and I've told them that you've written an article, uh, the listeners, and they can access it, that article via our website. Okay, finally, we have on the phone, uh, I think, uh, another legal expert, Fahad Ansari. Fahad is a consultant at Duncan Lewis Solicitors. Uh, he was perhaps one of the first lawyers outside of uh, Shamima's own lawyers to stick his neck out and believe me that's no mean feat to talk about this issue. Um, he's tweeted a comprehensive list of issues that Sajid Javid and the authorities might have in this case. Again the link is available on the uh, Facebook website of Inspire FM and I'd ask you to go to that and have a quick read. It's very very insightful. Fahad's been all over the mainstream media in relation to his views and he did interviewed by uh, all sorts of uh, uh, TV stations and newspapers. Um, just in terms of his own background, he's regularly instructed in these types of cases, so perhaps he's the perfect expert to talk about the immigration type uh, queries in this case. So listeners, as I've said, I want you to call in 01582 481 822. I want you to text in 0779 481 822. We want to hear your views. We want your views to get over. Uh, I'll start with you, Atik, in relation to all of this. Um, and I just want you to clarify something so our listeners aren't confused. Just a yes or no for now, Atik, if you can, yeah. Has Shamima Begum been convicted of any offence? No. Um, and by that, I mean, has she been, has she pled guilty to any offence or has she been found by a court of law within the UK to, or, or anywhere else for that matter, to be guilty of any offence? Yes or no? For that to happen, she'd have to be subjected to a a process in the criminal justice system. Okay. And because that has not happened, the answer to that is no. Okay. Um, has she been charged with any offences? Has she even been charged? Forget tried. Has she been charged with any offences, Atik? Before you get charged for an offence, it's quite normal for a person to be interviewed under caution for an offence. So we had no interview take place, right. let alone a charge or any sort of prosecution or any sort of proceedings. In actual fact, and forgive me if I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but in actual fact, um, I recall that at one point there was um, uh, comments made by the Home Office and of the police that people such as Shmuel Begum um, would not even be prosecuted if they returned. Um, so, no, we're, we're much further than the road from prosecution. I'm going to go back to that, uh, Atik, because I know what you're referring to, and we're going to pick you up on that point in a bit later. Uh, assalamu alaikum, Fahad. I'd like to introduce you to the listeners. Hello. Hello, Fahad. Assalamu alaikum. Can you hear me? Wa alaikum salam. Yes, we can hear you. How are you? Alhamdulillah. How are you guys doing? Uh, Alhamdulillah, very well, thank you. Uh, I know that you're pressed for time, Fahad, and I really do appreciate you coming on the line. Uh, I know that you have a lot of cases that you're dealing with, and there's a lot of exposure on you at the moment. Fahad, I want to get into the uh, questioning first. Has Shamima Begum committed any particular immigration breaches when she's travelled to Syria? Uh, is it a, do you think that there's anything wrong with her travelling to Syria in the first place in relation to immigration? No, in terms of immigration, I mean, I, I think you can comment more on the criminal side, but in yeah. terms of immigration offences, um, at the time she travelled, it was not a criminal offence or an immigration offence for her to travel to Syria or really any other part of the world. Um, it all depends on how she actually travelled into Syria. So yeah. In terms of Syrian law, if she entered the country um, illegally, then obviously that would be an immigration problem with the Syrian government. But uh, to, you know, I mean, in fairness, that's probably the least of a concern at this point in time. Yeah. So what we're saying is, so what you're saying is, in terms of UK law, she hasn't necessarily broken any particularly immigration rules. Um, whether she's broken immigration rules in Syria, clearly she did. She she must have entered illegally. But in terms of the UK, no. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Just going. Thank you, Fahad. I'm just going to come back to you, Atik. Um, you've done plenty of uh, uh, work in the. Uh, um, arena of terrorism um and you you've assisted plenty of defenders what laws could she have broken when she traveled to syria or when she went to syria to uh, be the wife of someone who's uh, in daesh or isis what do you think conceivably the government could have an issue with well in the face of it if she was interviewed under caution what they were looking at uh, in terms of proceedings is whether or not she has joined a prescribed group and or supported a prescribed group um, and I think that's the long and short of it there's no assertion at this stage and of course no investigation has taken place but at the moment there's no assertion 
that she's done anything more beyond that. Okay, what is a prescribed group, please, for our listeners? So forgive me because I can't remember the legislation off the top of my head, but in law um, there is a list um, of groups um, that are prescribed. Prescribed means illegal in terms of being allowed to join or support. Um, and all in that list, um, ISIS is one of them. Uh, and so if you join that group or are shown to be supporting that group in any way, then that amounts to criminal offence. Right. I mean, anyway, this is open to all three of you. In relation to the word supported, um, do you think her, the very fact that Shamima's married to an ISIS combatant is her supporting ISIS? Fahad, do you want to go first? Or should I? Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to say anything that might possibly um, jeopardise any, any future um, prosecution or defence. I'm but just, talk, I'm just don't, talking don't, theoretically, Fahad. Yeah, I, don't, I don't believe in being married um, to an individual who themselves may be a member of a prescribed organisation mm. is any evidence of your guilt of membership of that association. People, You've got people who are Labour Party members who are married to Tories in certain cases. It doesn't mean that they ascribe to those no. particular viewpoints, as, no matter how horrible they may be, but they don't ascribe to them. To be fair, we haven't but, got a member yeah. of the Conservative Party on here, so there's <laughs> a balance for you, yeah. <laughs> is absolutely right there. I mean, what I would say is, um, there's a good example is like a drugs case. Hmm. In drugs cases, um, calling someone isn't necessarily a criminal offence, right? But if, when you put a sequence of calls, a sequence of conduct into context, then what on its own might be an innocent act, when put into context, might be used to demonstrate that this person is on a path of criminality. Okay. And so what I would say is, hypothetically speaking, that, you know, marrying somebody that isn't indicative of supporting that organization you could be marrying someone because you love them but not necessarily prescribed to their thinking we often see people husband is labor and wife is tory you know right. two com different political parties different political beliefs just simply because they're married doesn't mean that they agree on that right. but in a case like this what the authorities may try and demonstrate is a path to criminality right which would have started from her journey in the UK to Syria, and they would try and demonstrate the intention behind that, the purpose behind that, and what happened when she got there. Absolutely. Rohana, I'm going to bring you into this now. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, Rohana, uh, and please do excuse me. These are basic fundamental questions that I've asked people in the community when I've told them about the show. They've said, well, I want this answered, I want that answered. So please excuse me. These are questions at face value, yeah? Uh, and listeners, I'd urge you again, have a read of uh, Rohana's uh, article. It is very insightful. Um, when Shamima travelled, why did she go? They want to know. Uh, why would anybody leave their loved ones and travel to possibly the most dangerous place in the world? You seem to have a, a, an idea about why she could have travelled. Well, I think at this point, none of us can, can really answer that. Um, but there are things that we can glean mm. um, from information that we had when, at the time that she left and actually even from her interviews there's lots that can be um, assessed from that so when she left the police and the um, home office described her as a vulnerable child because she was she was a child she was 15 years old um, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed at some of the discourse that has, has happened and actually a couple of weeks ago Jacob Rees-Mogg Mm. And this is going to be the first time and last time that I'll ever agree with anything Jacob Rees-Mogg has said. But Jacob Rees-Mogg on, on Question Time said she was a child and could not give consent. Um, so when she left, we recognised that she was a child. We recognised that she'd been, or the police were aware that, that she'd been in contact with groomers, essentially online, who um, sold her a story, which happens to lots of young people in lots of different contexts. Um, we've seen grooming happen really high profile all over the country with street grooming gangs that have had lots of media attention. The same sort of process would have happened to Shamima, um, where she has ended up making well, taking a journey uh, that wasn't in her best interest, but she wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to contextualize that because the people who were grooming her would have so warped her sense of of reality. Um, and she leaves. 
And it's very clear, actually, from her interview, um, when she's talking about why she leaves, she's not talking about fighting the infidel and all of those kind of things that the rhetoric you hear around ISIS. She's talking about finding a family. That's what she went for. And that's what she was groomed for. She wasn't groomed to fight. Um, and that still comes across very strongly, no matter how much we want to, to paint it in a different way. It still comes across very strongly um, in, in her interviews. So the other point that people have talked about quite a lot is her apparent lack of remorse. Mm, they certainly have talked about that, haven't they? It's all of the papers. Um, and again, I, I just think it the, the, the problem with us trying to trying to get her to conform in a way that we expect a victim to be and victims rarely do victims are rarely in a heap in a corner crying as they are certainly somebody who has been groomed who has been forced to think a certain way and again in her interviews if you hear every so often what she says is this is what they told me so this is what i believed Right, yeah. She keeps repeating that mantra. Um, and we know that she's had a really traumatic time and we we need to understand the impact of that trauma um, and the way that she is dealing with it. Tell us what grooming is, um, because some of us might be thinking, oh, it's quite a remote concept. How can somebody possibly remotely influence me to travel to a, a war zone? So tell us the mechanisms of that kind of behaviour, because basically some, some of us might think, it just can't happen to me. Maybe it can't, but we 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 know that it happens to children, and it's quite widespread. And, and she was a child. Wasn't she, she was a child, and it's yeah. really interesting that the same people who refuse to acknowledge that it happened to Shamima are up in arms about it happening to lots of white girls elsewhere. So when I when I've talked about Shamima, the thing that I've also want people to think about is how this woman and you can hate what she liked but how her story um is being infused with racism with islamophobia and misogyny um, and i say misogyny um because the charge against her seems to be that she's responsible for the the, the acts of her husband the behavior of her husband um and again if you look at lots of the the the, the types of memes and, and the language that's being used around her um it's very anti-woman um and it's very misogynistic but uh, back to your question sorry i, I digress yeah. on on grooming um grooming can take place in various forms it can be done by somebody who knows a young person um, and it can be done in person and it can be done online um, and in the case of Shamima, it was likely online. Um, essentially, the groomer will position themselves um, in a way that in the initial period, they'll just kind of try and befriend the young person, try to understand what motivates them, um, what are their needs, what are their desired, desires. Um, and then they will position themselves as the person who can provide all of those answers for her. So you know, whatever that need might be. And sometimes, in some cases for children, it's financial. Wow. And and in that term, sometimes people will call that consensual, but it's not. It's just a child, a child responding to their needs. So what do you say to people that say, look, fine, she was a child, uh, she got groomed. She's now passed a, a, a watershed in her age. She's 18, 19. Surely she should know better now. What do you say then? How, what are the men mental barriers that she's faced in reversing her decision? And this is all part of the grooming process because it doesn't stop. So once they've got her over there, it doesn't stop. She will continually be fed. She's led, led quite an isolated life. I mean, within those three years, she's been pregnant for well the vast majority of it. Um, from from what we can tell, she's been a housewife. Her only access to the outside world is her husband, who will come and her husband, who is twice her age, should we should add, um, who comes and and tells her things. And when you, as human beings, when we make decisions, we will find ways of defending those decisions. And those people who want to keep control of us will find ways of justifying their behaviour and normalising it. And this is what happens with grooming. It's not unusual. Just see, it just happens that. That where Shamima ended up um, is just particularly horrific to us. It is horrific. Fahad, I'm going to go to you now, and uh, Rahan, I'll, I'll come back to you in, in relation to this because this is really important that we understand this. Yeah. Uh, Fahad, um, we we know that we're jumping gun here, but for whatever reason, she's been stripped of her citizenship, yeah, uh, and that's rendered her stateless. What are the pr practical implications of being stateless, Fahad? What what happens then? Well, I mean, Hannah Arendt, a great philosopher, she said to take away uh, one's citizenship and leave someone stateless 
is to remove your right to have rights. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look in this country, um, in the UK, forget having citizenship, just having a document, an identity document, mm-hmm. to, on a bank account, to drive, to enroll in a school, to enroll in the GP, to do anything and everything in this country, you need some form of document. That's why many people who arrive here illegally who don't have documents, they will end up getting fake documents or creating documents, something to be able to function in the society we live in. Now, um, in, in, if anybody is stateless, you and particularly if you're in a third country and you don't have access to the government or the body which you would normally go to for consular assistance or services, mm-hmm. then you really are stranded with no one to look after you. If Shamima Begum was, for example, like that uh, British child in the Emirates who got arrested for flying a uh, Qatar flag or wearing a Qatar football jersey, mm-hmm. but he's got access to the, the consul, he can get uh, assistance. If he's in prison, he can get a visit. He has some form of rights and entitlements as a citizen, whether the government likes them or not, they still have a duty to, to protect them. What the British government has done here is said, well, he's nothing to do with us. And a knock-on consequence of that is that other countries then also feel that, well, if you have no protector, yeah. um, then you can, be, you can be manipulated, you can be targeted. So in the past, we've had cases where people have been deprived of their British citizenship, and within a very short period of that, they've been assassinated in U.S. drone strikes almost as if that that was the green light for their assassination, because until that point, it would have been an international incident for one ally to to assassinate the citizen of another ally. So here, they're not a citizen anymore. So they don't, that protection is removed. So she's almost left high and dry without any recourse to any legal uh, assistance or, or, or any rights. Is that correct? Well, well, I wouldn't say almost. She has been left high and dry. Mm. Um, the argument that she can potentially has Bangladeshi citizenship, whether she already has it or she can acquire well, it. Well, let's just pause for a second, because I'm going to go through that with you, Fahad, if I can. Yeah. And so we can obviously yeah. dissect that. The first thing that we need to obviously ask you is, what laws are the UK government depending on when they deprive a person of citizenship? So the Secretary of State, the Home Secretary, Mr. Javid, mm. he has, um, he's empowered to uh, sign executive orders essentially without mm. any recourse to a court um, or permission of a judge to literally take away the citizenship of a british citizen in circumstances where he believes it will not leave them stateless right but but by virtue of the fact that okay, I, I need to ask you a separate question is it has she got dual nationality she hasn't has she so, so um let me just go back a step okay now um what the Supreme Court said in a few years ago in a case called Al-Jada was that, so in that case, involved an Iraqi national who didn't have Iraqi nationality, lost mm-hmm. it, but he was in a position where he could have applied to reacquire it. Right. But, so the Home Office said, well, he's not stateless, he can apply for his Iraqi nationality. The court said, Supreme Court said, well, no, because at the point that you deprive them, he, he is stateless. Right. He has to make a new application, and that could take time, and it could be refused. So, as when you made your decision, you met him stateless. So, in, Sh- in Shamima Begum's case, um, my understanding of Bangladeshi nationality law, which is based on a case I ran last year, mm-hmm. is that any British-born child of Bangladeshi parents is automatically a, British, uh, a Bangladeshi citizen as well until they reach the age of 21. Mm-hmm. And at that point, unless they actively apply to retain their Bangladeshi citizenship, it will lapse and they will only be left with the British citizenship. Yeah. The difficulty with Shamima Begum's situation is that she's obviously 19, so she's not 21. Um, that said, there, um, and this is something that didn't crop up in my case, so I'm not too familiar with the technicalities, but there may be a requirement for that child when they're born to have their birth registered at the High Commission in order for that citizenship to take effect. Um, again, I'm not sure if that's the correct position, but that is a line of argument that has been used in other jurisdictions. Right. What would you say to those people who, who say, look, she's 19, yeah? Uh, she's got two years to make sure that she make, she uh, actively tries to become a Bangladeshi citizen. Um, is that now out of the water? Because essentially the Bangladeshi government have gone on record to say we're not accepting her. Is that out of the w- well, window now? I mean, what, what, what's really interesting about the Bangladeshi position is that in the, in the case that we, that we were successfully appealed in, um, and the Home Office has 
appeal that decision to the Court of Appeal to be heard later this year. Their reliance, and the point that the Court is going to look at, is a diplomatic note issued at the last minute by the Bangladeshi Ministry of Foreign Affairs, mm -hmm. which it, it, it says essentially that regardless of the age, we will treat all of these people, children of British Bangladeshi citizens born in the UK, we will treat them all as, as Bangladeshi citizens, regardless of age. Right. But privately, they, they, they pass that correspondence to the, the Home Office in order to really, it looks like, support their case. But then in this case, which is public and high profile, they've come out with the exact opposite. Right. They've never been citizens, and she's not a citizen. So I don't think, I mean, our, our position is going to be that we, well, you can't trust the Bangladeshi authorities in any case. They're just playing politics with this. Right. So just to recap, Fahad, she... From what I understand, she hasn't got dual nationality. Yeah, she hasn't applied, or she can't anyway apply to the uh, Bangla uh, Bangladeshi authorities because they've already said they're not going to take her. By revoking her citizenship, is she stateless now at the current moment? Friday Night Live. Democracy only works for those who are advocating it. Not working. This idea is sold to the Muslim world throughout, day in and day out. If you look at the leading nation that represents democracy in the world, this is how it treats its minorities. Join in the conversation with me, Abdel Akbar, and my guests every Fridays from 6 p.m. Assalamu alaikum listeners, uh, welcome back. Um, I've got on the line Fahad Ansari of uh, uh, Duncan Lewis Solicitors. Fahad, my apologies for uh, not counting you out during the advert break and the azan. Um, we were going to speak about Fahad, um, whether she is stateless at the current moment or not, and you were, you were going to give us your opinion. Well, I think um, whether she's legally stateless, that to be honest is, is something that uh, is not clear. But for all intents and purposes, whether she's de facto stateless, that is very clear that she, she, she is stateless. Right. Um, she has no access to consular services. She has no access to any identity document. She has no way of obtaining one, especially where she is. Had she been rendered deprived while she was in Bangladesh, for example, mm -hmm. you could make the argument, well, it's possible for her to obtain something. But in this scenario, in a war zone, where, in a refugee camp, where there's no consular assistance from any country, um, yes, I think she is stateless. Fahad Ansari, Jazakallah for coming on the uh, uh, radio and assisting us with all of this. I think your insight has been absolutely brilliant. I uh, appreciate that you're a very busy man. Uh, Jazakallah again, thank you for calling in. Jazakallah. Atik, I want to go back to you in a couple of things actually, because Fahad's mentioned that these uh, uh, laws do apply to British citizens who appear to be from immigrant backgrounds where your citizenship ship can be revoked. Um, if that's so, and you can't revoke the citizenship of someone from a non-immigrant background, are the laws inherently racist? Well, that's the concern, isn't it? That we've entered a stage in this country where essentially you have a two-tier citizenship process, where if you are the offspring of migrants, um, whether that's son, grandson, great-grandson, etc., your citizenship can be deprived, whereas if you're not a migrant, you're not. Now, I was having this discussion today with somebody who was of, um, was I think he's of Australian heritage, mm. and um, he said, yeah, that applies to me too, because I'm a migrant, Because, and he's, of, he's a Caucasian, white, um, but I said to him, look, that might be the case, that there might be white migrants in this country fall into that. But we're not talking about individual anomalies. We're talking about the general spectrum here. Mm -hmm. And generally speak speaking, the vast majority of people in this country who are of migrant heritage, they would be from BAME backgrounds, black, Asian, minority ethnics. Um, and therefore, you have a situation, to put it in very simple terms, that if you are black or brown and you have committed an offence, you are more likely to have, be deported, you are more likely to be uh, in a situation where your citizenship is stripped from you, whereas your white counterparts are not. And if that is not 
and this is quoting the wording of legislation in terms of the Equality Act 2010, that if that is not less favourable or unfavourable treatment because of your race, then what is? And it really is a cause for concern that in 2019 we're in a situation where Back to the Future had predicted flying cars and instead we have rise of the races with 10,000 odd races last year marching through the streets of London. The last time that happened in any city in Europe was Nazi Germany 1920s. And then we have legislation such as this, the impact on communities such as in Windrush, deportation of people and the stripping of citizenship. We've seen it, the start of it. The question I say, where does it end? Yeah, I think it was 1940s, but uh, I, I do get your point in relation to that. No, no, it was 1920s because World War One happened earlier, and just when you saw the. Right. Do you think that there is uh, traction in the opinion that racists can now point their fingers at um, people of BME background and say, "Well, you don't belong here. Belong here. Go back." Do you think this is added to that metric? It's empowered. This sort of race, the racist narrative that exists empowers races and what is a racist you have two forms of well it's a bit simplistic to say two forms but generally speaking you have two forms of racist you have one which the type of person which is obviously racist and doesn't really care mm. but then you also have a situation where there are normal people who may not even consider themselves to be racist but because of the racist narrative has been perpetuated by institution through legislations like this as well as by the media that without realizing it they hold a mindset which falls within the racist narrative uh, and becomes a racist mindset um, and that is re really is a problem I mean John Barnes recently has done, done a few interviews on this and every interview he's really hit the nail on the head mm. that the racist never went away they just went silent and now with these racist narratives, racist legislation, racist media that's out there, those people are now finding voices. And the scary part is it doesn't end with voices because some people out there also take action. And when they take action, people do die or people are seriously hurt. And so what I and I said this to, I don't want to say the um, media organization's name, but mainstream media approached me recently to do an interview and they want to do an interview on knife crime right yeah. and uh, people out there listening might know which who i'm talking about because they approach a lot of people in our community and the angle they were coming from was you know we've we, we, we interviewed the black community we want to know what the a a asian community is doing now about knife crime mm -hmm. and it was obvious where they were going and i said to them straight i said what you're doing is you are going down the same route as tommy robinson and other racists Okay, that this is basically um, uh, going into that racist narrative where if tomorrow people from the BME community are attacked or uh, because of, um, you know, uh, holding this view that they are responsible for knife crime and someone dies, that's blood on your hands because you've helped create that narrative, you know. Right. Um, was the only option for this for the government to make us stateless. Do you think that they could have done anything else? Uh, um, were there any other options that they could have taken rather than making us stateless? Well, that's the immigration question, I think. Mm. And we have now joined by Luton's very own legend in immigration law. Is that right? <laughs> Is that right, Gias? Assalamu alaikum, um, listeners. Just so you know what Ati's talking about, we've been joined by a very prominent immigration uh, solicitor. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Guys, um, you're making me blush. Assalamu <laughs> um, alaikum. My name's Safina from Malik and Malik Solicitors. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a specialist specialist, but I would say that I enjoy uh, practicing immigration law, and it's something that, with deprivation and revocation, is something that we we are coming across. With a few things, guys, I have been listening. I actually did tune in um, via my mobile, via the Inspire FM app. Um, so that was brilliant. Just two things I wanted to highlight. Um, Go for it. I, I listened to Atik's discussion, and I'm all in agreement when things are just and fair and you have to explain it. But you have to look at the Home Office position here. Mm. And I'm not normally one to back the Home Office, but the law allows you to deprive someone of their citizenship in the event where it's conducive to public 
good. For example, well, there's safety, public Mm. threats. Now look at Manchester Arena bombing. Mm. Look at the terrorist attacks that have come happened in the UK, mm. and it's a result of organisations who give support to ISIS or Taliban or who or could be alone individual. But these are things that have happened, and a lot of teenagers, young girls, families were affected by that. The yeah. other factor is we have to look at where individual obtain something by fraud. What the Home Office's argument here is that we're doing it as a because it's not safe, safe for the public. Maybe she's joined ISIS. Maybe she's committed offences. Maybe she hasn't. What I find unfair, I find it was a bit premature. What they could have done was let her come back, arrest her at the airport, conduct an interview, if any charges are to be found, press the charges, and then take it from there. Plus, it would have given insight to people who investigate grooming. How are are young girls being groomed? How was she approached? Who was she approached by? And how on earth did a 15-year-old leave this country without anyone realising? That I, would, I have a daughter and I would be very concerned and I'd want to know how my 15-year-old daughter can get on a plane with no one realising that she's going with two friends and she's gone to Syria. I don't think that... Even if she was going to Turkey, she was a child. Why was she, why was she travelling by herself? Well, I'm going to ask Rohana to comment on Where this. Where was because, the consent? Because Where I were think- the parents? I'm going to ask Rohana to comment on yeah. this because she's spoken about uh, uh, and touched upon this very issue. And I think I don't think it's quite as easy as her hiding everything from her parents. Rohana, do you want to come up, come up on um, this? So, so one of the things, again, that we, we knew that before she went, a friend of, a friend of these three girls had travelled to Syria some months preceding their leaving. They were interviewed by the police. The family were not informed mm-hmm. that they were interviewed by the police. In fact, the police did a rather odd thing. What they did is they interviewed the girls and then gave the girls a letter to go and give to their parents. Now, even if you've got the best 15-year-old in the world, mm-hmm. um, that's not, not the best way to communicate with parents on something as serious as this. Um, you know, both of us are moms. How often do you find that really important letter at the back of your kids' bags? Well, my um, kids aren't that age yet, but I don't think I will. Well, my kids are. <laughs> my, ki- my kids have been through all, all of those ages, and they don't. But also, these were girls that we've later know we've later known that were kind of thinking along the same lines as their friends. That they, so we these girls, it wasn't that they just sort of went off and nobody knew about it. They were on the radar. Um, but nobody did anything about it. And Is it okay to blame her parents though? No. I don't think it's okay to blame her parents. I actually don't think it's okay. I mean, my real problem here is the level of victim blaming that's going on. The amount that we are trying to hold a 15-year-old child to account for Mm -hmm. um, in this whole process. I mean, Safina has just raised the question of the Manchester bombing. And these sort of things are being bandied about, but they've got nothing to do with this child. Um, You asked me before about, okay, so she's, she's gone out there. We get she was groomed. She's gone there. But, well, why doesn't she think about it now? As if, or, or actually, again, I've got a child, Atika and I have both got children who have, stro- who have crossed that 18-year-old threshold, but they don't suddenly morph into no. amazing, mature human beings. No. But that ignores the process of grooming and how that impacts on the way that somebody thinks and feels. Um, and the impact of trauma and how that person feels about the person who's groomed them. I think lots of us have heard the heard the the, the expression when people talk about Stockholm syndrome, mm. which is basically when a victim of grooming or abuse of any nature develops an attachment yeah. to their abuser, and we see that in grown adults, in in mm. you know in women in domestic violence, men in domestic violence. Yeah. So all of these things are playing together, and we really don't understand what is going on. I know it's difficult to to speak about it remotely. If she's got Stockholm syndrome, Rohana, how is she giving these interviews? I'm really uncomfortable about how she's giving those interviews. She's vulnerable. One of those interviews um, has been given literally minutes after she's given birth and she is wincing through that interview. So I'm really, really uncomfortable with the way that our press has behaved in terms of a vulnerable woman. But again, from those interviews, I think she thought that was a way that she could get in contact with her family and say, I've messed up and I'm sorry. I think the other thing is that this is maybe the Home Office saying to young girls and people out there saying, if you're going to uh, join these groups, we're going to take your nationality and you're going to be be stuck out there. I think it's... uh, it's, 
a secret message that's being uh, advertised that look young girls we're not going to help you you're going to be stuck out there but what my concern is is people from the Bangladeshi community should be concerned because two things imagine being in Bangladesh and something happening and you go to the uh, to the British High Commission and say look I want some assistance and they turn and say hang on you're a dual national ask the Bangladeshi authorities because you're under the age of 21 yeah that I mean, is a point to think about we did discuss that earlier but uh, there is one point that i want to come back to you on uh, safina in relation to you saying that it's a warning to her and, and maybe other females they've actually brought back quite a significant m- number of people who have joined these prescribed organizations so if they're bringing them back what's the difference between mm. them and them i think a team must have well, about what i think is that this whole thing is just a publicity stunt it's right. a ploy yeah. you know sajid javid thinks he's clever he's not clever I, mean, I don't i can i could carry on for a while what i think of him but it's not very good no. um and you know for him it's a win-win situation he's showing the country look i'm willing to do what it takes to protect you if the court overturns the decision he's probably going to use that as a ploy later on to say, you know what, I need to be your leader. Mm-hmm. I was willing to do what needs to be done. The courts overturned the decision. So it's all political points. As I mean, I'm sure Safina can tell you how the immigration laws have changed over the years and how, in, and, and uh, Rohana can also confirm that, how, you know, politically, governments always use migrants and immigration as biggest political scoring points there are and create, um, they create stories and narratives which actually don't exist. You know, like, I remember Safina, do you remember a year or two ago, and our good friend Dajili was with us that time as well, we had this discussion about how um, the government puts out the stories about um, illegal immigrants being a burden on the taxpayer and I remember Safina and Taj are so excellently putting across the point Not how can you be a burden on taxpayer if you haven't got access to benefits or the NHS you can't you know it's just an example of you know, political scoring really Antigua I'm going to come back to you in relation to one thing I think Rohan wants to say something but I want you to think about what the government's actual guidance is on uh, uh, bringing, oh, yeah. bringing these examples back. Rohana, you were going to say yeah, something. Yeah, I think there's another point to be made, really, about the, the politics that are going on here as well. Um, a little while back, um, Sajid Javid made um, a point about how we needed to investigate grooming gangs mm-hmm. because it was, again, something that had been raised a lot by the far right. It was racialized, and he wanted to be that person, that brown man who said to a white populist crowd that he wants to be leader of, that, you know, I am going to do something about child sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yet he fails in this case to acknowledge how Shamima Begum finds what finds her where she is now. Um, in the case of all of those groom, you know, in all of those grooming cases, the police sought to support victims who had been groomed, and then went on to commit criminal offences. They are supporting those um women and in my opinion rightly so to introduce legislation which prevents those women from being criminalized under the influence of their abusers so they recognize that when women are abused they may act in ways that they wouldn't normally that they are manipulated and they can't be said to be acting of their own free will right and if you're recognizing that for those women then what are the barriers to us recognizing this for this child that does here? Seem a bit um, I've got a, a caller on the line by the name of Estelle. Uh, good afternoon, sorry, good evening, Estelle. Um, what was your good question, evening. please? Thanks for allowing me on the show. I just wanted to quickly make a quick statement. Yeah. Um, not really a question, but it's in regards to um, what Mr. Malik was saying about how um, having your citizenship, you know, stripped from you, how that could be discrimination, because. As of recent, with all this stuff about uh, Miss Begum, there's um, actually a person called Jack Lex, who is from Oxford. He is Caucasian, and he has dual citizenship. And his father's Canadian. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're not hearing about that in the media. And I do feel like people, this whole issue is now giving, let me not say undercover racist, but pe- it's allowing people to now kind of feed that narrative, that racist narrative that's already inherent. Um, you know, in society, and I just personally feel that they, there should be the same treatment. And I'm not sure who it was, one of the ladies present said that, you know, they're using this story, um, this incident, as an example to say, you know what, young ladies, if this happens to you, we're not going to help. But no. I feel like it's quite biased. Who are they speaking to? Are they speaking to young ladies of all ethnic minorities, all ethnic backgrounds and races, or are they specifically targeting? A specific race. Well, right. So, so you think there's some hypocrisy there in the in the uh, application of these laws, yeah? 
Yeah, hypocrisy and also discrimination because we're not hearing anything about Jacklets and the small, um, you know, news outlets. We're not they're not small, but we're not hearing it in the mainstream as well as Miss Bacon's case. Mm-hmm. We're hearing about how he's miss, missing pasties and Doctor Who, <laughs> and I feel like they're trying to feed a certain narrative. Whereas all we're hearing about Shamima, whether it's true or not, is how she doesn't really, you know, have any remorse. Esther, I do feel like they are, yes. Yeah. Do you think that there's been a deliberate racist narrative in this? Do you think that? Of course, we see it every day. We see it with Meghan Markle, we see it with Raheem Sterling, we see it every single day, but I just feel like it's something that people are in denial about or they just simply don't care. Estelle, I really appreciate you calling in. Thank you very much for your views. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Um, Atik, I am going to come back to you, but I have got one question that's been sent through. A uh, question for the panel is, is Shamima Begum protected by the Magna Carta, which confirms that anyone accused of a crime has the right to be tried by his or her equals? Does this guarantee her a right to return to the UK to be tried on these alleged charges? And that's from a person called Dean. Well, that's exactly the point that we are all um, arguing, that the rule of law should be observed, that someone should not be found guilty or determined guilty in the absence of a proper trial with the safeguards that arise from the criminal justice system and related processes. And just leading on from that, what I also find amazing is um, Sajid Javid's position, because in 2018, there was a, the Home Office released a counterterrorism strategy setting yeah. out how to deal with, hypothetically, a British woman who travels to join ISIS and has a baby. Right. And in bullet point form, if I just set this out, and I've put this on my social media already, yeah. and credit to the secret barrister on Twitter who picked this up first and sort of circulated this. But um, the first step is a managed return to the UK. The second step is a criminal investigation, and of course, then that would trigger the Magna Carta um, and you know, the criminal justice safeguards and procedures that exist. The third step is deradicalization, and the fourth step is care for baby. And my, what's amazing about this is Home Office Circular was, was only last year was released. It was signed off. The forward of this document was signed off by Sajid Javid himself. So within 12 months, we then have a situation that arises which falls squarely within the ambit of this Home Office counterterrorism strategy. So why was it abandoned and not followed? So are you telling me that they gave the exact same example and then decided to contradict it completely in this case? for political points. I think one more thing adding to that, because I I heard that, um, well, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that, that they confirmed that the child does have British citizenship. So why is a British citizen child in a Syrian refugee camp? It gets worse than that, doesn't it? They say the child's got a British citizenship, so there won't, will not be any adverse effect on the child, only on the mother. But hang on, so the child going to fly here himself, is he? So the Home Office have a duty of safeguarding and they have to consider uh, a child. So Section 55 basically says you have to consider the child's best interests. What best interests are currently the fact that his mother was in media? Uh, and on top of the fact that he's in a refugee camp. Safina, are we gonna? Yeah. Are they gonna actually bring the child back? How can Do they? You think? They need to make a decision on that. This is something that we need to see. And if the child is brought back, for example, mother uh, would become subject to immigration control because she's no longer a British citizen, but mm. she is a Bangladeshi citizen. Uh, I so don't think she is. This is what they're claiming. This is what the claim is. Yeah. But for example, if you have a woman in the UK, she's a Bangladeshi national. She gives birth to a British child. She can make an application, a paid application to the Home Office to regularise her status. She's then granted a a two and a half year visa on the 10 year parent partner route. Mm. Now, in these circumstances, there's one more thing to look at, because obviously when I heard Atik earlier, he said something about the age of 21 and the Bangladeshi government, whether they accept you um, up until the age of 21. No, Um, I think that was... That was the gentleman on the phone, sorry. what came to light was when you make an application for citizenship in the UK, you have to tick boxes. Have you glorified? Have you joined any organisations? And if you've met any of those organisations, if you meet, uh, for example, these groups glorifying terrorism, being a, ma- a member, being a bad character, the Home Office will automatically refuse your citizenship application. Do the Bangladeshi authorities have anything like that? Because technically she is a citizen. That's what the Home Office is arguing. But hang on, she hasn't applied. So she's never used a Bangladeshi document. She's not got anything. So if she wants assistance from a consular, what document is she going to show the consular? None. Um, Rohana, I want to come back to you to top and tail this, and I'm very conscious of the time. Um, 
so I've read your uh, um, article, as I say, and these girls, they're not taken to Syria or groomed to take to Syria and go to Syria for the purposes of war. There's strong suggestion that they're taken as sex slaves. Is that correct? Yeah. Is that the only reason that they're taken? Well, I, I say very directly in my article that she travelled um, not to fight. Um, everything she has said has told us that she she travelled with the expectation of marriage in her mind. A 15-year-old obviously cannot consent to either sex or marriage. No. Um, but and that's that's exactly what's happened to her. And actually, when when they look at when they even talk about the radicalisation of women, it's kind of different to the way that the radicalization of, of, of men is concerned. But I think I, I just wanted to touch on something else that Atik said before in terms of, and, I, and I'm not an expert on the law, but I won't say it, but actually how this affects us as citizens in Britain going forward. Mm. Now, um, one of the other things I do is I'm a, I'm a governor at, at school and as, as governors and teachers, we have a duty to teach children these days about British values and included in British values that our home office asks us to tell people about is the rule of law yeah, okay. um, and it just seems like naked hypocrisy to me for Sajid Javid then to ignore the rule of law here but I should double down on this whole good immigrant narrative that we have so what does it mean to be for any of us and I'm I'm a I'm third generation my children are fourth generation so my grandfather first came here or my children's great-grandfather here what does citizenship mean for us as third second third fourth generation um, families living in Britain well it says actually you are never going to be British and your stay here is contingent on you behaving just as we please. Now, if we are talking about rooting our young people and our government talks about our children being loyal to this country, how do they do that when they when they are perpetually outsiders? We're just about to run out, run out of time. Um, one last question for any of you. Why do you think that she's come over so belligerently in the interviews? Why didn't she just lie and say, well, I need to come back? Do you think that it's simply because of the grooming issue and she's so confused? She's vulnerable. She, if you, uh, when I first, uh, when I first heard that she went to come back, I was like, oh gosh, yeah. yeah. Um, won't tell you my initial reaction, but after seeing her interview and when, uh, seeing her hand, seeing the way she was, she, she'd just given birth. Um, yeah. And you look at the level of vulnerability. There is no emotion. There Why? is she's a blank page. There is no emotion. There's no eye contact. There's there's nothing there. She just looks like a woman that's completely lost. She's she she's still a child. Okay. Under that hijab and everything, there is a child there. Yeah, Brilliant. that's been groomed. I really appreciate all your help today and your opinions. Atik, Safina and Rahana, Jazakallah Khair for joining us. Uh, listeners, I hope you've had as much information as I have. Jazakallah. See you next week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.